0: Hello, and welcome back. My name is Dr. Christopher Gennary. This is a great big history podcast. And this is our final episode of History 102. Disney Princesses and American Feminism. Congratulations. We made it. So feminism is described in the historiography as waves. So we have first wave feminism, which is essentially from the beginning of time until around 1940 or so. It's the right of right to vote. It's the right of political citizenship. Now, it gets wins in 1920 with the uh, 19th Amendment and voting rights, Uh, but it begins to fall apart along race and class lines. Black women are not really included in first wave feminism. And this is one of its major failings Uh, for all the discussions that in American history make about uh, Elizabeth Stanton and um, Susan B. Anthony and um, the the various different uh, feminist uh, pro-suffrage movements um, black women weren't included. So it was a White female, mostly upper class movement. And we see this when we do when we did uh, Mary Poppins, right? Um, Mrs. Banks is a wealthy woman. She's not rich, rich, but she's upper middle class. She's that top ten percent. She doesn't want colonialists, she doesn't want minorities in in her party. They they would have different issues and different voting issues. And so, um, Even though women get the right to vote in 1920, they do not vote as a block. They immediately start voting where they can uh, along race, class, caste lines, which brings about second wave feminism, which is uh, starting in around the Second World War till around uh, some 1980. This is why it's called waves. There's, There's no clear beginning, middle or end to it. And there's there's a crescendo. It moves You know, it picks up steam. It starts early, but it picks up steam in the 50s. It really hits its peak in the late 60s. And this is about access to economic independence, to jobs. Great, I have the right to vote, but I can't get a job. I can't get paid well in that job. I can't get into these male jobs, these male industries. I don't have a separate income. I don't have access to credit cards. Like my mother in the 1970s had to have my father be a co-signer on her credit cards. How humiliating is that? As if she was a child. But the bank was like, well, you don't really have an income. You know, you're not really the breadwinner. So we don't know if you're gonna pay it back. And you know, I've been watching the Flintstones and women charge a lot of stuff that they can't pay back and it's up to their husbands. And it was like, holy Nikes. But that was true. It was a way in 1970, 72, 75. Credit cards thought about things. And so second wave feminism was about banking independence, that you could have your own bank account, your own checking account, because if you don't have your own checking account, you can't pay any of your own bills. To have it be entrepreneurships, to be able to get loans so you could start your own business, to desegregate the university education, because a lot of, especially the higher end schools, the non-state, the non-community schools, we're all gender segregated. There's the seven sister schools that are related to the Ivies. But they were female. The Ivies were male. And so there was a whole system of what's called the in-local parentis where the, the school was saying, we'll educate your daughters and we'll make sure she doesn't get pregnant. We'll keep the boys away. You could trust us. And this is like Animal House where the boys at the male university are constantly trying to have sex with the girls at the connected university there's also the desire for sexual freedom there's the pill there's abortion there's a, who to marry that you would have a say in marriage especially interracial marriages there's lesbianism as well that doesn't exist, and now it's beginning to be, uh, you're beginning to have a gay rights movement of women saying, hey, we exist. We're gay, we're, le- we're lesbians, and we exist. Are there wins? Yes, but they gain access to jobs, but are still, even today, paid 75 cents on the dollar compared to men for the same jobs. There is still a female um, penalty. There's a child care penalty because women, if they want to have um, take time off to have children, if they want to have children, they have to take some time off. By taking some time off, they lose time in business or especially of this second wave. They might have to quit altogether and they lose access to their job. There were no protections at all. There still really isn't for a job to keep women as employees but to take any maternity leave. And there's definitely no paternity leave. Men are not, men get a day. Oh, your child was born. Well, we guess you were allowed to be near the hospital because up to about 1980 or so, you weren't allowed to be in the delivery room. Um, women delivered children on their own without the husband around. Um, so, um, so for paternity, you get a day, y- you know. You had a child, it's okay, you could take one day off. But after that, it's like, you gotta be back at work, man. So there are wins, but they're not complete wins. They're not decisive wins. There's no major fundamental change. The third wave, which begins in the 90s, this is the, this is the wave um, I was experiencing when I was in college and into grad school. This is the Xers, these are the Ys and the early millennials. Um, this is a confusion about what the goals are, which is a very exer. It's very like, okay, I can get a job, but is that really what I want? You know, do, okay, like what do we do next? Like we can argue for more money and, and other things. And so you get uh, Judith Butler's work about how gender and sex are performative. They're not an identity, which for first wave and second wave feminism, you were a woman. This is one of those kind of things that... that, Well, I I don't want to get into that. Um, But the idea is that... Is gender is performative. That it's very David Bowie. You know, the kind of like... It's not who... Being a woman, or even being a man, is not who you are. It's an aspect. And you can change that aspect. You can play with that aspect. There are different kinds of women. But what Third Wave was really trying to do was defend the second wave gains... Against the conservatives of the 1980s and the 1990s, which were saying, "Get out of the workplace, go back to the home. A woman's place is as a mother. What are you doing? You're ruining the family. All of this divorce. The third wave are the children of the fir- of the second wave divorces. Second wave feminists were there. The, I should have I have marriage, but it's I should put in divorce." Xers are the first generation where their parents got divorced in mass. And so now conservatives, of course, freaked out about that because they said it's ruining the family. And their answer was to make it harder for women to get divorced. And so third wave feminism had to defend. It's a rear guard action. Third wave feminism is a lot about defending against the counter, the backlash, what Susan Faludi will call the backlash. Um, Third wave is about the freedom to be the woman who you want to be. It's inclusive of gay, trans, minority women and intersectionality, that you're not just a woman, you're a black woman, you're a gay woman. You are multiple things at the same time. And it's the idea that the second wave didn't go far enough. It was too white. It was too economically uh, obsessed and it got old and it was just way too white. It was it was not speaking to the America of 1995. Which brings us to fourth wave feminism, which is kind of where we are now. Fourth wave is developing. Uh, the, the the wave is, is coming. It's not cresting. We're not really there yet. It has, doesn't yet have an identity, which makes sense because the generation that we're in, millennials are just hitting their adulthood. Um, they're buying houses. They're settling down. They're in their careers. Um, the Zs and the Alphas are don't yet have the economic power to... Um, to enforce their philosophy. And so they're learning, they're doing, they're in college right now. They're in the early workplace, so they're, they're making the arguments. And so the fourth wave is kind of the third wave on the internet. It's internet feminism. It's collective, it's connective, and it's diverse. There is also the hashtag mean girls critique. Fourth wave feminism, more than first, second, and third wave feminism, is very easy to criticize other women. And the reason why is very simple. I anyone can Twitter, anyone can hashtag. It's more open than first, second, and third wave um, feminism was. It's anti-sexual terrorism. This is the Me Too, and against the ordinary quote abuse. And you will see this from time to time. You see this with Me Too, where f- for and I have had conversations where this has happened, where young women, young women in their 20s and even their early 30s will say, that's abusive. Whatever it was is abusive. This action was abusive. And a older woman, an auntie, a second wave woman, a boomer woman will say, oh, come on. That's just, what do you expect? That's just what men are. What do you, what do you want? Come on. Like, grow up, little girl. And it's because it's abuse, it's abuse, quote unquote, that boomers and older exer women, or even regular exer women, my women my age, took as ordinary sexual behavior. Look at the movies of the eighties, Porky's and Meatballs and Animal House and Revenge of the Nerds, where they women are objectified. Uh, look at the Breakfast Club and the the John Hughes movies with Molly Ringwald. Molly Ringwald is abused in those movies. And she didn't know she was abused. And then sh- here we are, rioting, she's writing in The New Yorker because she watched the movies with her daughter and her daughter's like, uh, did that boy just touch you? And she's like, oh my God, he really did. He touched my, my special place and that's abusive. Oh my God, how did, huh? how did I not see that as abuse? And that's because it was ordinary. It was ordinary sexual behavior that women's bodies were not their own in the 60s 70s 80s and 90s their bodies were something to be accessed by boys something to be available to and then used by men and so what was considered ordinary or even progressive in the 90s is now in 2020 seen as abusive like oh my god how can you act that way which is one of the reasons why me too has problems Because you're now getting a whole generation of late boomers and Xers and early millennials that are saying, oh, my God. That's crazy what happened to me. That's crazy what I accepted. That's crazy what we did. Fourth wave is also anti-systemic institutions. It argues that the systems themselves are anti-female, anti-woman. But is it global? Just the way first wave feminism wasn't inclusive racially, fourth wave feminism is very much American feminism. It's not necessarily has nationality and culture and class and race differences in it. It argues that it should. There are people who are saying, hey, women in Africa are treated this way. and We should include them in our feminism. And there's plenty of people who say, you know, We're fighting a fight here, like stuff is stuff is bad enough here. We can't save the world. We have to save ourselves. We have to advance ourselves. Then we could go back to Africa or India or the Middle East. So there's a question. It's part of the fight because fourth wave feminism hasn't happened yet. It's happening. So we're not in history yet where history is happening every day on Twitter, on Snapchat on Facebook, in conversations, in chat rooms. All right. So let's talk about feminism through the princesses. That's what we're all here for. And we have three major stages. Cinderella 1951 or from Snow White through the early 50s, where woman as worker. In 1991, we have Little Mermaid, we have Belle. We have uh, Pocahontas, woman as knower, as reader. And in 2017, we have woman as Pathfinder. This will be Tiana. This will be Anna and Elsa. This will be Moana. So we have these different, you know, I could put 2011 and it would be as as applicable. But Disney's represent these different waves. But in no case are they cutting edge with them. They lag behind and they lag about a generation behind and represent more conservative versions of that wave. So 1950s feminism. The goal was companion marriage, companionate marriage, love plus domesticity. Marriage is a better life. And for all of our women, marriage is a better life. They want to get married. Snow White, Cinderella, and Aurora all in the end want to get married. They view marriage as a good thing. And this is innovative for the 1950s, that they want love. They don't want to just get married. They're not thinking about the money. They're not thinking they want someone they are a companion, a partner with. Like Cinderella is not looking to get married. When she goes to the ball, she, she it doesn't even know she's met the prince. She's looking for someone she can care about and who will love her. And that's a big innovation because most people don't have the, don't have the luxury of marrying for love. They don't have the time, they don't have the money, they don't have the uh, access to dating, to, to the opposite sex. So they're marrying someone who's safe. in a lot of of times. Snow White is based on Shirley Temple, so she's girlish. She's got this girlish inner beauty, but she keeps house, and she is literally attacked by older women and men, by her evil stepmom, who is an older woman, and she views marriage and love as safety. Cinderella toils for no money. She gets help from an older generation, fairy godmother. And she views marriage as freedom. She gets out of the house. But Cindy is not looking for marriage. She's just looking for a night of not being herself. And that's what the fairy godmother gives her. Now, there's also the older generation of woman, her stepmother, who treats her badly. So, again, another tale of a young woman who is not who the sisterhood does not exist in the 1950s feminism. The older women are dangerous to younger women. That's also true in Sleeping Beauty. Though Sleeping Beauty's name is Aurora. And Aurora's body is based on a ballerina. It's long and it's thin and it's full of movement. And she is literally a Sleeping Beauty. People, people will call her Sleeping Beauty. They don't know her name is Aurora. But she's also passive in her own movie. She only has 18 lines of dialogue. And again, there's an older generation of women who are out to hurt her, but also an older generation of women who can help her. The fairy godmothers. And they have more action in the movie. Both Maleficent and the godmothers are more active in Aurora's life than Aurora is. And so this gives you this idea of what Disney is viewing feminism and what it's portraying feminism as. This is where it comes under criticism in the 90s and later in the 2000s that these women are too passive. They don't want anything. They just want to get married. Well, it's 1951. The war is over. The depression just happened. And they're looking for love. They want marriage because marriage, where else are you going? What job can Cinderella have? Right? She's going to work in an office. She's already working. And work sucks. She wants an escape from work because work in 1950 was industrial. It was labor. It was hard. It sucked. And you didn't have a lot of access to other jobs, to more fulfilling jobs, to more intellectual jobs. 1990s feminism, though, sees this change. You get adventure, life beyond domesticity. You're the daughter, you're a town girl. Ariel, I want more. Belle, there must be more. They literally tell you, I want more. There must be more than this provincial life. They choose companionship marriage rather than seek it. Ariel chooses Eric over her family. Belle chooses the beast over Gaston. And she saves the beast. She saves one and drives the other into a rage. That will eventually lead to Gaston's death. Jasmine literally says, I choose him, Aladdin. She saves Aladdin. She defeats Jafar. Jafar, the older generation of man who's preying on her, who's going to force her into marriage, a marriage she doesn't want. and Pocahontas will choose John Smith, even though they don't get married, but choose John Smith over her family, her tribe, her race. So they literally are choosing men, but they're in they're the active participants. This change in representation is the second wave feminism giving way to third wave. More women were getting college educations and advanced degrees. In 2008, more women got PhDs than men did and outnumbered men by 41% in grad school. And you can see in our doctoral degrees, especially in the humanities, Women were 7% more in biological sciences, 5% more in education, 116% more in health and medical sciences, 144% more in public administration, 178% more than men. The only place where men drastically outnumbered women is engineering. And mathematical and computer science. More women were working. Especially in non-traditional. But educated professions. Doctors. Journalism. Scientific research. Administrators. Education. But administrative education. Not just like elementary school teachers. Which is the way it was when I was a kid. When I was a kid. All the the elementary school up in, until the sixth grade, all the teachers were women, but all the administrators were men. Now, I'm, I'm a college professor, but I work with high school programs, and many of the people I'm working with, many of the administrators I'm working with, vice presidents, right, uh, directors of education, directors of guidance, are women. So that has changed. So there's a freedom for knowledge. Ariel wants to know about humans. Belle wants to know stories and books and tales. She wants knowledge that's in the books. Right? Pocahontas wants to know about Europeans, these foreign people. The desire for freedom of choice, even if the choice, even if the choice is just of marriage. But also there's a backlash, and we see this in a book that I knew well when I was in college and then we talked about a lot in grad school, which was Susan Faludi's backlash. That's Gaston in the town, right? Kill the beast, kill the beast, right? That's Ursula. That women might win full equality, and so you get a conservative backlash. Conservative women and male-run institutions and men in general who might lose if women win begin this backlash and blame Liberal women for the troubles of America, of women, of gender, of the family. Belle blames herself for Gaston leading the army against Beast castle. And Beast's death. Oh my God, this is all my fault, she says. Ariel signs a legal contract for love. Triton, the dad, sacrifices himself to save her. She didn't ask. She does it on her own. And this could destroy the world because it gives the power to Ursula. That the idea is these, there's a backlash. Not everybody is happy with these women expressing themselves. But by the end of the movie, love and companionship marriage solves everything. Love wins. Ariel transforms into a human. The beast transform into a man. Pocahontas gets the Europeans aren't genocidal. And get this, they go back where they came from. That's right. For all the races who are like, you should go back where you came from. Dude, you all came from somewhere else. Only Native Americans, only indigenous people. Get to say that. Everybody else came from somewhere else. I have ancestors here 200 and plus something years since before America was America, before the United States was the United States, and they still came from someplace else. So the idea of the movie is that the women's choice wins. Democracy wins. But there is a conservative backlash and women are blamed. Their very freedoms are blamed for ruining everything, for getting the beast killed, for giving Ursula power, If they had just stayed home, if Belle had just married Gaston, if Ariel had just stayed home and not worried, not cared about the humans, the bad stuff in the third act wouldn't have happened. For two thousand and nine plus, we get the self-directed woman; their life, not just their companionship, but their life is of their choosing. They save men as much as they are saved by men. They save Naveen's soul, Tiana saves Naveen's soul. Moana saves Maui from an eternal prison and his PTSD depression. Um, You know, and if you don't think he has PTSD, you haven't seen the movie. Um, Rapunzel saves Flynn Rider from a life of crime. Anna saves Kristoff from, quote, his thing with the reindeer. That's a little outside of nature's laws. Rapunzel has a dream. She wants to see the lanterns gleam. And these guys are pirates. They're murdering men. And they're so charmed by her. They're like, we will help you. You have a dream. Maui, on the other hand, is like, hey, I'm gonna take your boat. Because Maui could do anything but float. And he doesn't include Moana. But Moana goes after him anyway and keeps Maui from being killed later on. She saves him. So we get this self-directed woman whose life is of their choosing, Elsa, Moana, and Rapunzel. Sometimes they don't need a man, only love. That's Elsa, that's Anna, that's Moana. None of them get married at the end of the movie. Anna's kind of in a thing with Kristoff. But Elsa doesn't have anybody. And there's a huge movement for Elsa to be gay. There was a huge movement when that movie came out saying, she doesn't have to be straight. There's also the movement that says she doesn't need anybody. And in fact, there's a whole liberation song. And it is, it is a liberation song. You know, let it go. That the goal of these women is the ability to pursue their choices, to let it go. Or for Rapunzel, I have a dream, I'm gonna leave my tower. There's also the idea that adulting is hard. Adulting isn't hard for Ariel or Belle. They're not on their own. They live with their parents, or at least their fathers. Tiana is working hard to save for her own business. Elsa doesn't want to be queen, and Anna has no experience as an adult whatsoever. That's her her entire song. She's been locked away inside the tower, inside the castle. She doesn't know anybody. She doesn't meet anybody. Hold, you know, hold in there, Joan. You know, Joan of Arc's gonna be burned at the stake. you got trouble. Rapunzel has dreams, but needs help to achieve them, like Anna. She needs Flynn Rider to help her get out of the tower and get her to go see the lanterns. She can't do it on her own. Teenage Moana has to save her island from a plague. Like, oh, talk about hard. And none of them can can rely on the traditional nuclear family to help them. None of them. Tiana's father is killed in World War I, and she has a supportive single mom, but she lives in 1920s South. It's New Orleans, but it's still the South. It's still the segregated South. Rapunzel is stolen by her evil quote mom. Elsa and Anna's parents kept the girls isolated, and then they died in an oceanic accident. Moana's father has PTSD from his friend getting killed when they tried to uh, try to get away from the breakers, and um, when they tried to save the island. So his his bestie is dead, and it's like just don't try, right? He's broken. Third and fourth wave feminism is the idea that life is full of minefields. There's trauma everywhere. You need to be happy with yourself and your own goals. The older generation and their traditions are not always helpful, and they have their own traumas. And there's intersectionality. Tiana is an African-American plus a woman. She has African-American experiences. She has female experiences. Moana is a Polynesian woman. And those are separate and work together. So Disney is the reflection of this American status regarding gender. It's evolved and changed. It doesn't stay the same. So a lot of the critiques that is, oh, these women are all old fashioned is wrong. It's just untrue. That feminism and women's roles change in the movies over time. They become more independent. They become less domestic. But they are still heteronormative. These are still straight, mostly white, family oriented women. New princesses' stories reflect and try to fix the, and modernize the story uh, of the modern culture but it is of the adults making the movies. Thus, it's always a generation behind. Remember, the people who are making Belle are in their 40s. They are second wave feminist men and women. The women who are making, the men and women who are making Moana and Rapunzel, on the other hand, came of age watching Belle. So they are third wave. So it's, you're always behind because the people or making the movies that reflect what they want the changes to be. So 1990s princesses' movies are a response to the limitations of 1950s feminism. And the 2010s are responding to the limitations of the 1990s. So they're always a generation behind because the conversation they're having is a generation behind. But by 2020, princess, quote unquote, is really a state of mind rather than a position, since behavior, desires, actions are tied to character, not to position. Is this successful? And the answer is yes. Disney's princess branding is a $5 billion industry. Parents want their daughters to partake in the princess life. There's this boogie. Book boogie. There's this book. Cinderella ate my daughter. How my daughter like dispatches from the front lines of the new girly girl culture. But it's about I'm a feminist, and my daughter is a princess. And what do I do with that? It it comes into conflict with your idea of feminism, the idea that you can be anything. Can I be a princess? Well, yeah. You know, yes, you can. If you could, if you can be whatever you choose to be, you can choose to be a princess. So the company Disney is dominating the idea of childhood as a feminine play and feminine play Um, in elementary school. A girl's ages three through six at schools, 90 percent are Disney princesses. I don't know how accurate that number is, but I've seen it. And this is a class problem because the dresses, the makeup, the hair, is all expensive. To to play a princess is an upper middle class white role. And there are few women of color as princesses. So effectively, some American girls are locked out of what has become normative fantasy of girlhood. They can't be Belle, or they can't be someone who looks and acts like them. Because there's not enough diversity of economics or of race. Okay, thank you. That is where we will end our um, feminism and Disney princesses. So thank you. That brings us to our encore. Woo, you thought we were over. No, we have an encore. The Road to Fight Club, American masculinity, in continual crisis so we've kind of tacked this part on because we're gonna we're gonna talk about the men as our encore so our encore oh this is our born to run i suppose you know we've come back out and the idea is for all that women are doing women are changing the role of women are changing their lives are changing their education are changing All of those changes create a constant crisis of masculinity from the 1950s to 2020. So we have from 1978 an article, Hollywood's new ideal of masculinity in what may be an emerging genre of movies the post-feminist romance, there appears a character who expresses in his personality and relations with the heroine a new ideal of masculinity. He might be described as the emotionally competent hero. Alan Bates plays him in The Unmarried Woman. Paul Starr, assistant professor of sociology at Harvard, is the author of The Discarded Army, Veterans After Vietnam. I don't know why I had that last part in. I could have left it as the emotionally competent hero. I don't have the next paragraph. I cut it out. The emotionally competent hero. You know, this is the man with feelings. That was big in the 70s. You know, he got a perm. You see this in, um, they're made fun of in that 80s show. Uh, not that 80s show, uh, the Goldbergs and that 70s show. You know, they're in touch with their feelings. They cry all the time. Um, what do men want? So this is the 90s. What do men want? A reading list for the male identity crisis, right? The finger of feminist accusation has been pointed at many different parts of the male anatomy, but the favorite object of scorn or a man's robotic brain. Did I tell you about Susan Faludi and backlash? Do you hear backlash? Men are defective, brutal, competitive, exploitive, insensitive, disconnected from meaningful social relationships. This is the New York Times. Remember the liberal New York Times? And then we have the future of men, masculinity in the 21st century, right? We have a window right now to redefine what a good man, a real man, is in the 21st century. As a society, we need to elevate the standards to which men are being held and no longer accept the outdated mantra that men will be men and boys will be boys. We must have zero tolerance for the destructive brotherhood that occurs when men of all ages gather and depend on sexism and misogyny as their common bond. 78, I want to say this is like 93. I should have put down the number. And then we're in the 2020, we're in the 21st century. And they're all saying the same effing thing men are in crisis. Men are constantly in crisis. So each wave of feminism creates a crisis of masculinity. And capitalism is happy to profit from that crisis. In the 50s and the 60s, in response to second wave feminism, you get the playboy lifestyle. You can live the good life without getting married and kids. It's sex positive. It's patriarchal. It's consumerist. It's upper class. It's urban. And later, it's multiracial. Not necessarily in the 50s, but by the 70s it is. Or tries to be. The sexual revolution and female sexual freedom equaled less responsibility for men. You get the college bros, you get hookup culture. Like people are like, oh, hookup culture is in the in the 2000s. No, this it starts the, the moment women start going on the pill is the idea that we can have sex without you getting pregnant and I now don't have to care. So we get Jimmy Carter, we got Playboy, right? With Marilyn Monroe, but by the 70s, It's respectable enough. Playboy is respectable enough that Jimmy Carter is giving interviews. And it's a famous interview. We have James Bond. The entire style of James Bond is this. He has lots of sex. He's got a great car. He probably can't afford. He's got sexy clothes and he drinks a martini. He drinks sexy drinks. He lives an elevated lifestyle. And he doesn't ever, ever, ever need to get married. Except one time. And that's the movie Nobody Remembers. In the 80s, we get hard bodies. Rambo, Top Gun, Schwarzenegger. If you have ever, you want to see a hard body, you want to see hard bodies, watch Top Gun's volleyball scene. It is, it is a effervescence of masculine homosocial Activity. Schwarzenegger's body. Rambo's body. We get Iron John by the poet Robert Bly. The idea that you have to get back in touch with your feelings. That men need to go and be in nature and be with other men. Not in a gay way. Though they can be. But in a men need to be able to share their emotions, their sh- their feels with each other. You have to be vulnerable with other men. This is what we see in Fight Club. In the opening opening half hour of Fight Club. That physical toughness. You needed to be tough to defeat communism. To protect women. To protect children. And you see this all the time. Um, I am not a big proponent of owning lots of guns. I'm a teacher. I know guns are being, going to be pointed at me. At some point in my career. Um, it's not a question of if. It's a question of when. And whether or not I get to be old enough that I age out and kind of just miss it but um but you see people on the forums and what is their justification for having a machine gun i have to protect my children i'm like where do you live like how dangerous is your neighborhood when was the last time there was a murder in haddonfield that you need to have three ak-47s you can't even use them all at once but it's, I have to protect my women. Wa- and that's the 80s masculinity. Because communism was out there. And so you had to protect women. And you had to protect children. And again, this is also part of the racial stereotype. You had to protect them from, from crime. From black crime. You had to protect your white wife, your white kids, from black crime. From the drug addicts. From those people from the From the city. So there was this physical need for toughness in the 80s. Remember when we talk about conservatism, this is a period of time when we have white people are fleeing to the suburbs. There's the idea that men can be together, that's Iron John. But homosexuality is bad. It makes one feminine. It makes one swishy. You know, this is the age of AIDS where you didn't admit to AIDS. AIDS was a it was the gay literally the gay plague. Straight people didn't get AIDS. Now they did. And they taught us and conservatives will teach the kids in the 80s. And we're all scarred by it. If you were a kid in the 80s, you were scarred by this because they wanted you to never have sex ever. And they used AIDS to stop you from doing it. Basically, if you had sex, you would die. Was there was there was what we were taught in elementary school in the early 80s. so <coughs> excuse me so very different that's the conservatism it's very different it's a backlash from the sexual freedom of the 60s and the 70s in the 90s we get fight club american beauty the matrix we get the book bowling alone the idea that men are on their own and that they're consumers that white men have no role in america anymore they're anesthetized by culture they lack emotional connections. That the culture is feminized and consumerized and you don't have independence. And you gain independence and all of them in Fight Club and American Beauty and Matrix. You all gain independence by basically breaking free from the system. In Fight Club and American Beauty, you actually get paid for not doing work. In the Matrix, they don't have to do any work. In the Matrix, they have no money and they don't need any money. They just kind of do their superhero thing. And so to see real truths, you have to be feminized and consumerized and independent. But in the 90s, as different from the 80s, gays and homosocial relationships are okay. In American Beauty, the only couple that has a healthy relationship is the is the gay couple, is the male gay couple. Who are essentially, if they're not married, they are married, but it's the 90s so I don't remember the movie as well enough to remember if they're married or just partners, quote unquote, but they're essentially married and if you were to do the movie in 2010, they'd be married. Um, But they're the only healthy. In Fight Club, the whole idea of hugging is this testicular cancer Um. Support group, so it's only men. And what happens is a woman enters that male space and changes everything and ruins everything. We see these letters from World War II that there are lots of servicemen who were upset when the U- USO brought women to these isolated islands out in the Pacific. They're like, hey, you know we were doing fine, we were all dudes, we were hanging out, and then all of a sudden these women show up, and all of a sudden every, all the men change their behavior. And that's the story in Fight Club, is that the presence of a woman changes this male society. The Matrix is that the culture lies, and that men need other men to help them discover the truth. Neo can't, needs Morpheus. He needs another man to instruct him, to show him what the truth is. Is that a homosexual or homosocial undertone? Of course it is. But then you beat up bad guys, and so it's okay. In the 2000s, we get the Jordan Petersons, the Joe Rogans, we get 4chan and 8chan, we get the Joker as a chaotic rule breaker. It is the idea that Jesus, guys, you're a freaking mess. Like the '50s is a is sexy. There's a crisis, but hey, we could use it. The '80s is we have to fight. We have to be tough. In the '90s, there's the entire speech in Fight Club about how there's no room for America. And by the 2000s, it's Jesus, guys, you're a mess. Get your act together. Jordan Peterson has made millions. He's a professor. And what does he do? He writes a book about pulling your pants up and wearing a belt. And he makes millions of dollars. Look at his 12 rules for life. Stand up straight with your shoulders back. Treat yourself like someone you are responsible for helping. Right. Compare yourself to who you were yesterday, not who someone else is today. Like. It's like, think about it. If you need to do those things, what does it say about you? So you watch Joe Joe Rogan or listen to Joe Rogan get get jacked, drink his mushroom coffee tea, take lots of vitamins. It comes from the idea that women have already taken over. Modern masculinity, this 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 Joker as a chaotic rule breaker, the Jordan Peterson's the Joe Rogan, they hate men. They hate liberals and they hate squishy conservatives. They love consumerism, though. That's a big change from the 90s. They like violence and the appearance of strength. So Joe Rogan is ripped. Why? In some ways, it's a performative. It's the way Rambo was ripped. It's that body has come back. But we get incels the get-good culture of MMOs. We get school-shooting fanboys who argue who's the best school shooter and what ranks can you get up to. And you get the 3 percenter militia types who go into the woods and join each other and shoot things. Or you get the militia groups that are the survivalists who are waiting for the apocalypse. These are not guys who have a future. None of them have a future. None of them think they have a future. Even the survivalists think the world is going to end. They might survive it, but that actually sucks. That's kind of the um, um, uh, the Christian idea of the um, rapture. Those who are left behind. There's a whole book series called Left Behind. That's not good. That's bad if you're left behind. When the end of the world happens, you don't want to be left behind. You don't want to still be around. Because that world is going to suck. So every time women change, men change, and that creates a crisis. That creates the question of what will happen to men. So men are always, American men are always in crisis. Every generation is in crisis because, as we talked about, women are always changing. So men are defined not by who they are, but in oppositional relationship to women. Men are not women, which brings us to the complications of gay or trans men, That's why it's so difficult for gay and trans men to be accepted in straight society, in straight male society. That's why there's the F word to describe gay men, which Matt Damon, who's of my generation is like, dude, I said that all the time in high school. Why do I, why am I, I didn't know it would hurt people. It's like, yeah, but we still said it all the time when we were teenagers and you described each other because you were always fighting with each other over what is real masculine, what is real masculinity. So your way of defining masculinity was to insult someone else's masculinity. Everything was gay in the 80s and the 90s. Everything bad was gay. Oh, that's so gay. And that meant something bad instead of something awesome. And so why? Because the idea was that gay men are feminized, they're, they're more like women, they're swishy, which is an old, old stereotype. They're not real men, capital M. So if men are defined as oppositional to their relationship to women, then where do gay and trans men fit? And that's part of the problem, is they essentially don't fit. That's why we have our LGBTQIA movement. To find a space in American society for that. Female independence, income, plus laws, especially divorce laws, plus technology, like in vitro fertilization, equal this conservative worry of the end of men. And you get the men's rights movement. That women are taking over. Women uh, control the economy. Women control society. Women control the law. And men always lose. Well, that's, it's not true. This is not true. Yes. There are issues, especially with divorce law, that are, have not kept up with the changes in culture and or economics. Okay. We live in a democracy. We can change those laws. We can update those laws. But every time women make more money, there's this idea of the end of men. There are no wars. This is a kind of fight club thing. There are less working class union jobs in which you can make an independent income. There's more college education equals what kind of man is the future man and who is left behind? In fact, our presidential elections of 2016 was very much about that question. It's working class white men overwhelmingly voted for President Trump and not for Hillary Clinton. And a big part of that is not that President Trump was going to help them economically. He wasn't going to give them lots of stuff. It was that he represented a continuation of the old-style masculinity, whereas Hillary Clinton, a female president, would, by her very election, indicate that the world was changing. Now, it turns out that more educated men equal, more money, longer marriages, and they live longer. And so there is a separation. There is a pulling apart based on education between college educated men and non-college educated men. And that is true of within race and separate races. So there is a crisis. Is it a crisis of men is the question, or is it a crisis of non-college educated working class men? And that is exacerbated by the collapse of industrial work since the 1970s. In our conservatism lecture, we talk about how the bottom 90% has not had a pay raise since 1980. Well, that's this. That's these guys. There's the rise of militarized policing, which hurts African-American men, but also hurts poor white men, too. There's the rise of female education for women and including women of color. So the collapse of industrial work, the rise of militarized policing, the rise of female education equals that men of color cannot access the same gender equity that women of color can access, except for maybe black women, whom Malcolm X will tell us, and um, all the way back to... W.E.B. The boys will tell us that black women are more, there's no one more prejudiced against, there's no one who suffers more from racism than black women. And we see this, we see that black men, black men, men of color, including black men, but also Spanish men, Hispanic men, and immigrant men, cannot access the same gender equality. And we see this in, of all things, West Side Story from 1957, which it talks about the immigrant experience, Puerto Rican immigrant experience, that is more liberating for women than for men. You have Anita, Puerto Rico, my heart's devotion My heart's devotion let it sink back in the ocean, always the hurricane blowing, always the population growing, and the money owing, and the sunlight streaming, and the natives steaming, like I like the island Manhattan, smoke your pipe and put that in. And the girls, I like to be in America. OK by me in America, everything free in America. And Bernardo says, for a small fee in America. And Anita, buying on credit is so nice. And Bernardo responds with, one look at us, meaning Puerto Rican men, and they charge twice. Rosalia, I have my own washing machine. Indi- India, what will you have, though, to keep clean? Meaning you can't do any jobs. You're not going to be hired. Men aren't going to be hired. Anita, skyscrapers bloom in America. Rosalia, Cadillac Zoom in America. Teresita, industry booms in America. And the boys, 12 in a room in America. Anita, lots of new, ho- new housing with more space. Bernardo, lots of doors slamming in our face. So you're, you're getting this idea. Bernardo, better get rid of your accent and Anita's like, life can be bright in America. And the boys, if you can fight in America. So the idea is that men of color cannot as easily be accepted into their, this new America that's developing and never have been. But women, mostly through marriage, through relationships, can. They can have access. Now, are they going to be treated as equal to white women and or white men? No. But do they suffer less prejudice? Anecdotally, we can say yes. Not necessarily scientifically, but as far as as 1957's West Side Story has a song about this process. So there's something there. And that concludes our course with men, always in crisis. So when, when you see something that says men are in crisis, understand they've been writing the same thing since at least industrialization, since at least the 1860s, since the end of the Civil War. You now, men are always in crisis, especially in America. And yet men somehow do okay. We're okay, gentlemen but there is now a toxic masculinity and there's a toxic culture of masculinity. That is, we talk about it as like the men are bad, but the people who are telling men how to act don't like men. They think we suck because they're telling you, pull your pants up, right? Tighten your belt, stand up straight, make your bed. Right? They think you're a child. It makes sense. Jordan Peterson is an adult. He's not 20. He's not 25. So his attitude towards young men is they're children. So I'm going to treat them like children. But there is also a bit of fascism in all of that, right? You should all act the same. You should all get your act together. You all have to be militarized. If not in actuality, at least in your thought process, in your thinking, in your behavior. You have to be tougher. You have to be leaner. You have to be more efficient. That sitting around and playing video games is a waste of time. And that's something we need to solve. That is something that in the future, um, there's plenty of room for men in America. There's plenty of room for masculinity, but it's always in crisis. And the problem is, is that the people who are telling you it's in crisis are increasingly people who think men are bad. And they're making money off of that message. And we need more male positivity in this world, I guess. I don't know, I'm a historian and this is not history. This is like yesterday I'm reading the news and doing this stuff, you know? So remember, history takes 25 years because you need to be able to analyze this stuff. So I don't know where this is going, but it's not healthy. But we get paternity. We get, we're, men are more involved in dadhood. I should have spent more time on there as positives. Because while we talk about masculine crisis, the ability for men to do more adulting, more caregiving, more emotions than their fathers or their grandfathers were ever capable of is huge. Especially in European men who take months off for paternity leave, who are caregivers, who have a more equal uh, distribution of domestic work. It's never equal. It's not going to be totally equal with their wives, but they're closer than men than American men are. So there is a future. That future is more female and that future is more diverse, more people of color. And that's okay. But there is places for all kinds of men in that future. Conservative men, liberal men. But it is a future that's either going to be less equitable because of backlash or more equitable because the demographics and the economics and the education are moving that way. And right now what we're seeing is the separation of the two. We're seeing... um, non-college educated people get more conservative and have more conservative masculine uh, ideas, which makes sense. And the more college educated are more equitable with their partners. So that's where we'll leave. Thank you for participating. Thank you for staying with me this entire time. If you've gotten to the end, you're awesome. Thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed this. It was a lot of effort to make. I enjoyed talking to you. I thank you. Be safe. Take care. Investigate and analyze everything. Think. The world is big. It's not simple. It's very complicated. But be true to yourself. Like, go back to the Delphic Oracle. Know thyself. To thy own self be true. And if you do that, You'll be okay. There's a place in this world for you, and you'll make it.